0: Get started.
1: Recording in progress. All
0: right, so this is Daily Power Parsha. Today is Wednesday, December 22nd, 2021. And we have a lot to talk about. We're going to talk about the origin story of Moses. We talked about precipitation of slavery, the Egyptian experience with the Jewish people. We talked about the birth of Moses, the basket The daughter of Pharaoh rescuing the baby, um, Moses being nursed, ironically, or I don't know if that's the right word, but in a a twist of fate by his own mother. But then Moses grows up in the palace, and that takes us pretty much directly into today's topic of conversation. So let me pull that up. Give me a moment. Okay, here we go. And I'm going to share my screen with you. Okay, this is this. This is this. We're up to the third reading, although today is Wednesday, which means it's reading number four. We're up to number three, and the goal here today is to to kind of catch up. Okay, Exodus chapter 2, verse number 11. This is the coming of age of Moses. Now it came to pass in those days, says the Torah, that Moses grew up. And that is a, a very um, it's, a, it's a loaded it's a loaded phrase it's a loaded term in, in Torah when it comes to Jacob and Esau, the twins the Torah also tells us va'yigdalu hanarim and the the lads grew up and one man and one was a man of the field and the other one was a dweller of tents when the Torah used the word va'yigdal or va'yigdalu growing up it means not just physically but it means On a maturity level, growing up means coming into your own and becoming who you are, for better or for worse. So here the Torah tells us that it came to pass in those days that Moses grew up. And that means now he's starting to think, he's starting to question, he's starting to become a mensch. Listen to this. Here's a guy that grew up in the palace. Yes, he was a Jewish kid. Yes, he was nursed by his mom. But he did grow up in the Egyptian royal space. And he went out to his brothers, his Jewish brothers, and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian man striking a Hebrew man of his brothers. So he sees an Egyptian, a taskmaster, and he's striking this Jewish man. Now you might think on a simple level that why is he hitting this Jewish man? Because that's what slavery was like. You had the slaves. And you had the officers that were overseeing the slaves. And if you were out of line, boom, you got whipped. You got, uh, you got beat up. And although that might be true, there's another story over here. There's another story. Take a look. Take a look. Oh, one second. Before we get to what I was just saying, let's, let's look at Rashi. Moses grew up. So, the Torah, so Rashi asked, was it not already written? The child grew up. What does this mean? So Rabbi Yehuda, the son of Rabbi Eli said, The first, Vayigdal, was Moses' growth in height. He physically grew. The second one was his growth in greatness because Pharaoh appointed him over his house. Like Joseph, Moses is now a big macher. He's he's got responsibility in the palace. But he looked to his brothers. He didn't stay in comfort, which is a lesson right away. We have an immediate lesson here. And that is, if it's good for you, but it's not good for the other, yeah? Do you actually care about the other in the fact that it's not good for them? Or do you, do you say to yourself, I have a fine, I'm not feeling any, any, any challenge, I don't feel the pinch, you know, not my issue. Moses heads out of the palace, and he looks at their burdens, and he empathizes. And he sees an Egyptian...
1: not I'm sorry, he didn't know that he was Jewish. Absolutely, right? he
0: knew he was Jewish. 100% he knew he was Jewish. For sure. Oh, he knew? Absolutely, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean Moses.
0: Yeah, don't let Hollywood tell you otherwise. Uh, don't don't let uh don't let an, an intricate Hollywood storyline um you know distort the truth. Of course, yeah, he knew he was Jewish.
1: How did he know?
0: How did he not know? He grew up his mother told him he was Jewish. His mother. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, he he but had he must all
1: have been Yeah. And his circumcision.
0: I was going to say he had all the signs of being Jewish. I was going to like yeah, he was a Jewish kid. Um but it must
1: have been hard all those years to Yeah. Like, to hide. I I, mean,
0: I don't yeah I I don't yeah it's it, it must have been very difficult. Here's a Jewish kid, you know, growing up in the palace. On the one hand, it's great. Everyone else is suffering, but you're you have it made in the shade. On the other hand, right? You know, is this really where you belong? So this is kind of where he's at right now. So as he grows up, yeah. Yeah.
1: I thought of another thing. I mean, so like you made the comparison with Joseph, Yeah. You know, so Jewish, and the the Pharaoh relies on him because of his talents, and the same thing here with Moses. I mean, that's kind of been also our story along the ages, right? Because anti-Semitism, but still, why not our talents?
0: Yes. Yes. I hate Jews, says the anti-Semite, but I got a good Jewish lawyer. Yeah, he's the yeah. only good one, right? Yeah. So, so Pharaoh is enslaving the, uh, uh, the Jews, but he's got Moses. And Moses is being appointed over his house. Good. All right. And despite his, his comfort, he still looks out at, at the burdens of his brothers. And he sees an Egyptian man. Let's, let's jump into this Rashi. He was a taskmaster appointed over the Israelite officers. He would wake them when the rooster crowed to call them to their work. Now, understand what we just read. He was a taskmaster appointed over the Israelite officers. Not over the Israelite slaves, but over the Israelite officers, which implies the following. That there were multiple levels in this whole operation. There were the slaves that did the labor. Then there were Jewish officers or Israelite officers that oversaw the Jewish slaves. It's like, And we've seen this also throughout history. This was true in the Holocaust as well. The, the, the Nazis made Jews oversee their fellow Jews and putting them in an impossible position. And so here we have the same thing. This is of obviously thousands of years prior. We have the Egyptians forcing the Jews, some Jews, to be officers and, 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 and be harsh to their fellow brothers and sisters. And so this guy was a taskmaster appointed over the Israelite officers to make sure the officers were making sure that the people were doing what they needed to do. And he was striking a Hebrew man. Here we go. He was lashing and driving him. What's the background story to this? And he, the Hebrew man, was the husband of Shlomit, the daughter of Dibri, who's mentioned in Leviticus. We'll get there in a second. And he, the taskmaster... The Egyptian taskmaster had laid eyes on her, on this guy's wife, this Jewish woman, this Jewish wife, this Egyptian taskmaster had laid his eyes on her. So he woke the Hebrew at night and took him out of his house. And he, the taskmaster, returned and entered the house and was intimate with his wife while she thought that he was her husband. The man, the Jewish husband, the man returned home and became aware of the matter. When the Egyptians saw that he had become aware of the matter, he struck him and drove him all day. So here we have a very horrific, a very dark tale of, of, of assault and, and indecency and I don't know what else you want to call it. Um, deception. The Egyptian taskmaster pulls the Jew out of his home. He is together with this guy's wife. And then, when the guy figures this out, so then the Egyptian is beating him up all day. See where this is. It's it's, it's crazy. It's 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 horrific. Let's continue back inside. So Moses sees what's going on. He turned this way and that way. Moses looks here. He looks there. And he saw that there was no man. Which simply means he saw there was no one around. This is Moses. So he struck the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. That means he struck him with a lethal blow and hid him in the sand to bury him so that no one would see, that no one would find him. Just to add some insight into this, he turned this way and that way means that he looked in the past and he looked to the future. Simply, it means he looked both ways and he saw no one was around. That's a simple explanation. We don't need to elaborate on that. But this way and that way and a deeper level means he looked back and forward. It means that he looked to the past. Did this Egyptian have any merits? No. In the future, would he have, would he potentially have any offspring that would be, you know, noteworthy? No. He saw that there was no man. He saw that there was nothing of note that would emanate from this man. So he killed him. This already tells us about Moses' spiritual gifts. That he had this ability, this insight into this Egyptian uh, Egyptian. A man's life. So he takes him and he hides him in the sand. Let's continue. Moses, Moses is the he over here. He went out the second day. The next day he goes out again. And behold. So again, he's royal. But he's looking out at the Jews. And behold, two Hebrew men were quarreling. These are two Jews fighting with each other. Arguing. And, and Moses said to the wicked one. And you'll see why he's called wicked in a second. Why are you going to strike your fellow? The one who's lifting his hand to beat up the other guy, that's the wicked one. If you lift your hand, not you, if one lifts their hand to strike someone else, already they are wicked. Again, unless it's in the act of self-defense. But otherwise, if it's an act of assault, already he calls them a rasha. Vayomer said to the wicked one, Lama why are you striking your friend? And he retorted like only a Jew could. Yeah? Or, maybe say it nicer, as only someone who was just caught with their hands up would say, yeah? But it's also a Jewish rhetorical question. So the guy says back to him, the Jew says back to Moses, who made you a man, a prince, and a judge over us? Who are you? Who are you? Right? Instead of saying, you're right, I'm wrong, instead of admitting defeat, instead of you know, um, staying on topic, this guy says, who are you? Who made you a man? Who made you a prince? Who made you the judge over us? What, you think you're some big shot because you're one of us that made it into, into the royal palace? Who are you? Already we see the Jewish opinion of Moses. Are you with me? At least some who looked at him like the privileged one or, you know, different. And his then he said,
1: Joseph, brother, Joseph, his brother. Yeah, said, Joseph.
0: same thing, same thing, right? They, they're a little bit different. And then, and then this Jew says to, says to, and we know who he was, by the way. We know who these two are. are. I'll tell you in a second. So this guy says to Moses, do you plan to slay me as you have slain the Egyptian? Oh, you, are you going to kill me like you killed the guy yesterday? Moses became frightened. And he said, Indeed, the matter has become known. Moses thought that no one had seen. He looked this way, he looked that way, he killed them. he buried him under the sand. Right? No surveillance cameras, no DNA testing, no evidence, no witnesses, nothing. Turns out, it was known. He says, uh-oh, the matter is known. If it's in the rumor, if the rumor mill is already churning, if the gossip on the street is that I killed the Egyptian yesterday. It's only a matter of time before it makes its way up to the top. And Pharaoh himself, as we'll see in the next verse, that's what happens. But Moses realizes it's going to be very soon that Pharaoh himself hears about this. That Moses, the Jew raised in the royal palace, is now defending his brethren and killing Egyptian taskmasters. And he's going to be in big trouble. So he becomes frightened. Rabbi? Yes.
1: So, you know, of course, Moses is going to, uh, you know, write the... Ten, well, assisted writing the Ten Commandments, you know, that shall not kill. So how does that... Yeah, what's the justification? You're
0: allowed for? to take a life to defend another life. You're allowed to take a life in self-defense or to defend someone else who's innocent. So, for example, if someone sees... You know, person A chasing person B with a knife, with a gun, whatever. Person C, the bystander, the one who's watching this, is allowed to intervene and stop person A, and if it requires it, using lethal, using lethal force. Now, if it doesn't require lethal force, then there's no justification to use lethal force. But if that's the only way to stop the assailant, then one is allowed to do lethal force. The Torah, and this is clear in the Torah, the Torah does not get into the does not take the position. Of well if murder is bad, then all killing is bad, and so then you couldn't you can't even kill to stop someone else from killing. Torah does not subscribe to that line of thinking, even though there is a there is a there's a space logically to to argue that. Right? If that person killing them is wrong, then me killing them is also wrong. Okay, that's a way to look at it. But Halacha does not look at Torah doesn't look at like that. One way to understand this is by understanding the laws of Rodav. I'm sorry. This is called Rodaf. Rodaf means when someone else is pursuing someone to kill them, they become fair game and, and, and they can be taken out. What's the logic behind Rodaf? It's like a bullet. It's like the Iron Dome. You're knocking the you're knocking the, the rocket out of the sky. Right? So you have the enemy, the enemy um, force, and you're allowed to knock that out of the sky. So it's the enemy force like a bullet. You can knock a bullet. You can destroy the bullet on the way to take out an innocent life, obviously. So in this case, this person has now changed. They're no longer, again, the way Halacha looks at it, they're no longer a person in the sense that they have protection of the law. They are now a Rodaif, which is a new category. They are like a bullet. They are like a missile. They're like a rocket. They're like a taker of life. or They are very soon to be a taker of life, God forbid. And so they become fair game to be taken out to stop that from happening. Again, there are arguments other ways, and certainly uh, you know, a long conversation could be had, but that's the core of the Jewish understanding. So Moses was justified, according to Jewish law, to take out the, the Egyptian man that was beating up this, this Jewish guy and presumably you know, beating him to a pulp. Um, what's happening here is the next day he's trying to intervene Jew-on-Jew uh, violence, and the Jew, who's the the one who's lifting his hand to the other guy, says, "Oh, you're gonna kill me? Like you killed kill the Egyptian?" He says, "Oh, now it's known. That clearly, there's a leak somewhere. There's a leak somewhere in the information, and and very soon it's gonna reach the top, and I'm gonna be in big trouble." Now, just to clarify, drop this clue before. Who were these two people that were fighting? Dasan and Aviram. These were the same two that always caused trouble to Moses. From this point on. It's a very complicated relationship. These were the ones that caused trouble. These were the ones that said, let's go back to Egypt. Who's this Moses guy anyway? These were the ones that joined the revolt of Korach. It was Korach and um, another guy. And then it says, Dustin and Avirim from the tribe of Reuven. These were the guys that were part of the, the original um, coup attempt of Korach later on in the book of Numbers. They were always.
1: Edward G. Robinson. What's that? Edward D. Robinson. Who's that? That was a guy in the Ten Commandments that always gave Moses trouble.
0: Oh, was that Okay, <laughs> nice. That must have been that must have been the character of It's either Dustin or I There's always two.
1: It's Dathan. They called him
0: Dathan. Dathan. That's him. That's him. Nice. He's a
1: bad dude.
0: Bad dude. This guy caused trouble even after the Ten Commandments movie ends. This guy was, karach. he was swallowed in the earth. He was one of the guys that was swallowed. These two were swallowed in the earth. But we see the relationship begins over here. I don't know if it began here, but the first time we have an allusion to them is when they were fighting each other. So they fought each other. Clearly, there was some skirmish going on, some scuffle, right? Some friction between them. But when Moses hits the scene, it's like, all right, well, he's the bad guy now, right? Mo- it's, Moses is the problem. Anyway, I want to pull up some Rashi's here before we get to Pharaoh's response, because that's, um, powerful in and of itself. Um, here we go. Dathan, yeah, right here. Dustin and Aviram, or Dathan and Abiram. They were, oh, two Hebrew men quarreling. So Rashi identifies them. Rash, this is where I got it from. Rashi IDs them. They were the ones who saved some of the mana. Oh, I forgot to mention. They were also ones who saved some of the mana when they had been told to not to leave it overnight. He saw them fighting. And Rashi clarifies, although he had not struck him yet, he is called wicked for merely raising his hand to strike him. The Talmud says, even raising your hand to strike someone else already renders the person wicked. Rabbi, excuse me. Yes. The mana is
1: though in the future, right? Say it again. The mana that's addressed here yes. is referring to the future.
0: Yes, that would be a future incident where again, right. Moses says, don't leave any overnight. And they're like, who is this guy? What does he know? Moses. We don't need to listen to him. They were constantly trying to undermine Moses' leadership and his and his uh, his guidance and his you know his anything that he said they had to disagree. They were very disagreeable to him. All right, let's continue. Who made you a man? You're still a youth. <laughs> Seems like that was part of the argument. Not who died and made you king slash prince, but yeah, you're still a pitcher. You're still a little kid. Okay, Moses became frightened. Here we go. Look at Rashi. To be ex- according to the simple meaning, it means that Moses was afraid that Pharaoh would kill him because Pharaoh would find out. That's how I've been explaining it thus far. But look at, the Midrash, look at the Midrash. Midrashically, it is interpreted to mean that he was worried because he saw in Israel wicked men, informers. He said, since this is so, perhaps they, the Israelites, do not deserve to be redeemed from slavery. In other words, this anxiety, this fear, Moses became frightened. It was not only for himself, but he was saying, I've been wondering all this time why it is that the Jews are slaves, and if they'll ever get out, and now I'm afraid that if they're hitting, if they're beating up each other, and if they're like gossiping and rumoring and, and, and striking back when you try to correct them, I'm now concerned that where are their merits? Do they even deserve to be redeemed? This is way before, this is 40 years before God will appear to him at the burning bush and give him the the mission to take the Jews out of Egypt. This is just his internal thoughts. The Torah is recording his internal thoughts and feelings. He became frightened. He said, indeed, the matter has become known, not just about him killing the Egyptian, but the matter has become known. I now know why they are slaves. But he changed his
1: mind later on, Moses. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Let's look at Rashi. Let's see. Let's see that Rashi right here. So indeed, the matter has become known. Rashi says to be interpreted according to its apparent meaning. The simple meaning is that it was known that he had slain the Egyptian. In midrashic interpretation, however, it is this: the matter I was wondering about why Israelites are considered more sinful than all seventy nations of the world to be subjugated with backbreaking labor has become known to me. Indeed, I see they deserve it. And you're right. Moses has to. The first thing he has to learn as a leader. Is how to judge the people that he's leading favorably. Correct. That's one of the things, by the way, I will mention this. Um, Let me hide this for a second. So, yeah, and let me stop sharing for a second so I can see you guys. This is one of the times that God gets upset at Moses. Is when Moses says, ah, the people are not going to listen to me. First he says, I'm not the right guy, you know, whatever. But then at some point he says, the people are not going to listen to me. And God says to him right after that, put your hand in your jacket, pull it out. And it was white. It was white. Tsaras. No, you know what Tsaras is? Tsarat, it's the leprosy that's not leprosy. It's the affliction for gossip, for negative, speaking negatively about someone else. Lashon hara. So when he said about the people, they're not going to listen to me. That implies that they don't deserve it. They're not going to listen. They're not believers. God says to Moses, the first lesson you need to know is you got to believe in the people. You got to give them a second chance. You got to believe in the power to change. Yes, maybe after, you know, centuries or uh, generations of slavery, maybe they're now not a great place. But you have to be able to see further than just what's right in front of you. If you want to be a leader, first thing you have to do is believe in the people. You want to lead people, you have to believe in them. If you're running a team, if you're running a business, and you don't believe in your team, then just stop. Stop. <laughs> if, you're, if you're building something, you got to believe in your people. So God says it's one thing to believe in me but you have to believe in the people that you're leading. It's a powerful lesson in leadership. Powerful lesson. If you're looking cynically, if you if you're like ah they're never going to get it done then that's a fa- then that, that's that's going to fail. That will fail. You have to have faith and trust in the people. I think
1: the most troubling thing though is that he said Maybe they deserve to be slaves. I mean, we could apply that to our entire history. I mean, if we start thinking right, that
0: right, right, the Torah is not necessarily saying it was a healthy thought or it was a good thought. The Torah is telling us. First of all, the Torah just says he said to him. He he got scared and he said, "Indeed, the matter has become known." We have. What does that mean, though? So the simple meaning is, it's become known that I killed the Egyptian yesterday, or now I know why they're enslaved in the first place because. Because they're the infighting, because of the gossip, because of the you know, turning against each other.
1: But that wasn't even the reason, though, right? I mean, yeah, we can't
0: justify it, but he's saying himself that I mean, generally speaking, we're not trying to attribute, you know, blame for for exile. But at the same time, I think we can learn a lesson, and that is that part of what keeps us enslaved is this infighting. I mean, think about. Think about what got them, at least with Egypt, think about what got them into Egypt in the first place. They sold their brother as a slave. That's how the Egyptian story begins. Now, what would have happened had it never had, had they not sold their brother? Would there have been a famine? Who, I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? You change one piece, everything else could change. What we do know is they ended up in Egypt because, ultimately because, they were fighting with their brother. Which means that Egyptian slavery begins with brothers fighting. And Moses is saying the fighting is still going on. And when I'm trying to stop the fighting, they fight with me for trying to stop the fighting. That's the level of, 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 of you know, addiction to fighting, if you will. To, you know, to not speak, I don't mean that literally, but I mean how compulsive infighting is amongst, amongst our people, is what he's saying. And that was very disappointing to him and very fearful. He became afraid. He didn't become self-righteous and indignant and say, oh, you guys are terrible. He became afraid. He was concerned. This is a problem. And as long as this is going on, he felt, where's the, where's the hope? Where's the future? So is it judgy? Yeah, but is it more of like, we got a problem? I think it's more of the latter. What should we do? I don't know if we're meant to take this as a lesson that we should start, you know, looking and seeing what the problem is. But I, at the same time, blaming. But I do think that there is a measure of self-awareness and awareness that can help us correct what needs to be corrected that is healthy. So it's about, as always, it's about walking that fine balance between healthy correction and unhealthy blame. And uh, he says we could be the
1: least deserving among the 70 nations and then it leads to we're the chosen among the 70 nations.
0: Well, yeah, they hadn't been chosen yet. Remember, this is before Sinai, before the Torah. But he's saying, you know, why is it that we're slaves stuck in Egypt Saying, oh, I'm afraid that maybe this is why. Okay, let's continue. So what happens next? Pharaoh, verse 15, Pharaoh indeed heard of this incident, as Moses had feared, and he sought to slay Moses. This was a, to to Pharaoh, this was a capital offense. In other words, this was, this was, oh, we got to get rid of Moses now. So Moses fled from before Pharaoh. He literally flees the country. And he stayed, He stayed in the land of Midian and he sat down by a well in good Jewish fashion. He goes to the well. We have multiple stories of sheduchim, of matches being made by the well. Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Rachel. And now Moses, single guy, you know, and a refugee from Egypt. Where does he go? He goes to the well. Here we go. And wouldn't you know it? A young lady approaches. Now, the chief of Midian, the chief of Midian, he was the uh, the priest. In the Hebrew, it actually calls him a Kohen. Kohen, Kohen, priest. He was a spiritual leader of Midian. He had seven daughters. And they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flocks. So these daughters were shepherdesses, shepherdesses, whatever. And they came to, you know, uh, give the, the animals water. But the shepherds came and drove them away. oh Misogyny, bullying. Yeah, this is not good. This is not good. Right? The shepherds, the male shepherds came and drove them away. So Moses, Moses the, the newcomer, Moses the Egyptian, Moses the Jew, Moses arose and rescued them and watered their flocks. Moses saves the day. Steps up, who says chivalry is dead? Well, this is going back a few years. So he goes and does his chivalrous act of rescuing these young women, and he gives their flocks the water. They came, so and that's it. And they 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 they, they left and that's it. They came to their father Ruel, who was Yisro, Yitro, Jethro, called Ruel also. They came to their father these seven girls, and he said to them, Why have you come so quickly today? How are you back so fast? So the implication here is that every day they would go with the animals, and they would get harassed. And it would take them a while to finally get the water. But this day Moses stepped up and rescued them and fed and gave the water gave the water to their animals, and so they came home. So that he asked them, Why so quickly today? Now, did Rule know that his daughters were being harassed or did he just think it took them a while? Who knows? But either way, the question is, why is today different? And they replied, an Egyptian man rescued us from the hands of the shepherds. Maybe he did know. Today, we had the help of an Egyptian man and he also drew water for us and watered the flocks. He was our hero. So this, uh, Ru'el, Jethro, Yisro said to his daughters, so where is he? Where's this guy? Where's the hero? Why have you left the man? Invite him and let him eat bread. What do you mean? A guy helps you out and you leave him there, right? A stranger, a visitor, a wanderer helps you. You got to bring him home. You got to offer him a meal, offer him to come over to the house. Well, obviously they did. They went back to the well and they got him. And Moses came over, and uh, yeah, one thing leads to the other. The Torah kind of fast-forwards the the process. This would be in a movie when they would do like the montage. This would be the montage that moves kind of quickly through the different stages of the relationship. So Moses consented to stay with the man. He said, sure, I'll stay by your house, you, O man who has seven daughters. And he gave Ru'el, Jethro, Yisro. He gave his daughter, Zipporah, to Moses. Moses now gets married. So Moses arrives in Midian single. And he is a refugee. He's escaping from certain death in Egypt. He meets, he meets the shepherdesses. He gets invited to the house. Relationship begins. And eventually, he marries the eldest daughter, the, the Zipporah. It doesn't say eldest, but my, my understanding is... My recollection is that she was the eldest. Alright, here we go. Next, she bore a son. Sippora gave birth to a son, and he named him Gershom. Moses gave this, his firstborn son a name, and that was Ger Shom. For he said, What does that mean? Gershom Shom is, is a is a composite of two words, Ger and Shom, which means stranger there. Why? Why Gershom? For he says, I was a stranger in a foreign land. He's in Midja now. It's not his, not his, uh, home, it's not his home territory. He's not on home turf anymore. He says, I'm a stranger in a strange land. So he names his son, Gershom. Let's stop here for a moment. Let's stop here for a moment. And let's see if we got some rashies of notes that would help us with the narrative. Give me a second. So Moses did not want
1: to disclose that he is Jewish.
0: Uh, my understanding is that at some point, they realize that, and Sipora, Um accepts that, that way of life. That's my understanding. I mean, do you think it was
1: because he was afraid? I mean,
0: she calls him an Egyptian.
1: Right, that's what I was just thinking. I guess, her.
0: presumably, because he looked like an Egyptian. You know, he had been from the royal palace. Maybe he, you know, he was wearing one of those things. I'm kidding. I don't know, right? Maybe he was wearing some Egyptian garb. Could be. Um, um, By the way, this chief of Midian also was almost Jewish. Look at this. Look at Rashi, the chief of Midian. So Rashi says he was the most prominent among them. He had abandoned idolatry. In other words, he had renounced paganism. So they banned him from living with them. He himself was an outcast at that point. So he was the priest. He was a spiritualist. But he had actually abandoned, um, he, had, he had given up his, uh, his idols. Very interesting. Um, the shepherds drove them away because of the ban. Ah, why did they harass the girls? Because the family was ostracized. Okay. Ah, okay, here you go. Look at this. Yisra says to his daughters, why have you left the man? He recognized him, Moses, being of the seed of Jacob. He knew that he was Jewish, right? For the water rose toward him. How did they know this? I guess they said that the water rose toward him. And he's like, ah, that must be a Jewish guy. Your Egyptian friend, your new Egyptian friend, must actually be Jewish. Or from the seed of Jacob. I don't think Jewish was a term then, but from from that family. Let him eat bread. And that means, it's a euphemism for perhaps he will marry one of you. As it says, except the bread that he ate, alluding to Potiphar's wife. So, bread is a euphemism for marriage, relationships, etc. Okay, let's continue. Okay, so we're up to we did all the Rashi's. We're now up to verse twenty-three. Let me toggle uh, Rashi's off. All right. Now it came to pass in those many days. That means after a long time, it happened. It came to pass that the king of Egypt died. And the children of Israel sighed from the labor and they cried out and their cry ascended to God from the labor. So the king of Egypt died and now apparently it gets worse. I spoke yesterday, two days ago, about the progression of the slavery worsening day by day, year by year, whatever. Here we have the next stage. The king dies, and they now they sigh and cry from the labor. What's the connection between the king dying and and the, the work getting harder? Rashi gives us a powerful idea. Take a look. Take a look at this powerful idea. Now it came to pass in those many days, Rashi says, that Moses sojourned in the Midian, that the king of Egypt died, and Israel required his salvation, and Moses was pasturing, and his salvation came through him. Therefore, these sections were juxtaposed. King's affliction and dealing with Moses pasturing flocks, etc., as we'll see soon in the narrative. But that's really not the Rashi that I wanted to point out. It's the next one. What does it mean the king of Egypt died? I mean, simply, he died, but Rashi says no. Based on the Medrash, he was stricken. He was stricken. He had a skin disease. And his doctors told him that he needs to bathe in blood. So what did he do? He would slaughter Israelite infants and bathe in their blood. He would actually murder babies and bathe in their blood. This is already a next, this is a next level of, of, the, of, the, of the persecution. Remember, we spoke about the, the, the decree about killing the Jewish boys. And we had the decree about throwing the boys into the Nile River. A lot of that was centered around preventing the birth of the Redeemer of the Jewish people. Um, but now that ship has sailed. I mean, the, the Redeemer was already born. That, that already had happened. So now we're dealing with just an egregious, just egregious is the wrong word. It's just a horrific decree. Pharaoh's Fa, Pharaoh has a skin condition. And so it's decided that he needs, he needs to bathe in blood and he's murdering Jewish infants to get to, to get that blood for his bath, it's 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 actually horrific, and it's uh, it's what's going on here. So God heard their cry. Oh, here we go. Let's get back inside. This takes us to the second to the last verse of the reading. Um, God heard their cry, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He made His covenant with each of them. God promises Abraham. God promises Isaac. God promises Jacob about the land, about the children, about you know blessings, etc. And God saw the children of Israel, and God knew. God knew. And uh, what does that mean? God knew? Rashi says, lakim, and God knew. It means he set his heart upon them and did not conceal his eyes from them. All right. Reading number four. The narrative continues.
1: Hi, can I say something? Yeah, for sure. Um, It seems to me that in uh, all of these things that time has to pass for people to grasp how important things are. Moses was a Jewish child. He was raised in an Egyptian castle. right? And he said, maybe the Jews aren't worthy And he went away and got away from the Egyptian lifestyle, so he could see, maybe so he could see the suffering and accept the suffering and understand that you don't victim blaming, so to speak.
0: Right. I like that. And then
1: the Jews had it worse, and they became more worthy. Also, they. Recognized and they went to God, they were at God before this 24 and 25. Maybe they had turned away from God and now they're turning back to God.
0: I like it, I I like it. I'm just guessing. No, I like like that perspective. So, I like both. I like both angles. Number one, you need time, you need time and and space to kind of get perspective on things. What you the conclusions that we come to in our youth oh, I got this figured out, that figured out, you know, but sometimes lacks empathy and lacks uh, compassion. So he needs that time and space to kind of see things from a different perspective. And um, and God, yeah, and the people had maybe turned away, and now with things getting getting worse, you know, maybe maybe they they had fa- fallen into a sense of you know just acceptance of this is this is the way things are. But now when there's a next the next level of decree where he's murdering babies for their blood, and this was According to the, my understanding of the Talmud, this was like an everyday occurrence. You know, I mean, this was a wake-up call and got them to be, you know, plugged in. We, we don't want such wake-up calls, but I, but I hear what you're saying. I, I think that, uh, that there's a lot of truth in that. Um, okay, so let's jump into reading four. I don't know that we're going to do the whole thing, but let's do a little bit. This is the, the next evolution or the next step of the Moses story, the Moses origin story. And this is very familiar territory. Moses was pasturing the flocks of Jethro, his father-in-law. Oh, suddenly he's Jethro. He was Ruel a few verses ago, if you recall. Now he's Jethro. All right, he's got multiple names. He's got multiple names. So he was pasturing the flocks of Jethro, his father-in-law, the chief of Midian. And he led the flocks after the free pasture land. So, number one, he only, sh- he only led the flocks into the free pasture land, i.e. the unowned uh, land, unowned gra- um, areas, because otherwise it would be theft. And he came, he stumbled upon the mountain of God to Horeb. Now, this typically is a euphemism for, or is an expression of Mount Sinai. Rashi says, He took the animals to the free pasture land to distance himself from the possibility of theft so that they, the flocks, would not pasture in others' fields. So he wanted to make sure there was no theft happening. Number two, he took them, he came to the mountain of God. Mount Horeb here is called the mountain of God in in view of the events of the future. This This is referring to Mount Sinai. He ends up at Mount Sinai. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. From within the thorn bush. And behold, the thorn bush was burning with fire, but the thorn bush was not being consumed. So you have the most remarkable sight. You have a thorn bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed by the fire, which is very bizarre. So Moses said, Let me see now, sorry, let me turn now and see this great spectacle. Let me go check this out. Why does the thorn bush not burn up? What's wrong with this thorn bush? The Lord saw that he had turned to see, and God called to him from within the thorn bush. And he said, Moshe, Moshe, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, the favorite response in the Bible, Hineni, here I am. I'm present. I'm with you. This is the first recorded conversation between God and Moses. And I will tell you, it's not the last, okay? It's not the last, but it's the first of many, at least recorded in the Torah. But before we get into the nature of the dialogue, which we all know, I, I also want to mention a few things. Number one, the fact that the bush is on fire, but not burning, not being consumed, is certainly significant. And it evokes the sense of the Jewish people. The same aforementioned... Looking at them positively is powerful here. And what's the positive look? Yes, they're not perfect. True, there may, there may be some infighting or whatever. But, but at the end of the day, they've been lit on fire for hundreds of years. Enslaved in Egypt. And they still haven't been consumed. You with me on this? They're still around. The fire has been applied to them. And, and the truth is, you want to fast forward out of Egypt? Sure. It's been, it's, been, it's, been a, it's been a minute since things have been, uh, since we've had a temple. It's been a minute. And, and there's been fires. It's been fires, but we're still here. Because the fires, all the fires out history, have not consumed us. They burned, and they hurt, and we lost many. But as a people, as a whole, we haven't been consumed. These are some, this is some of the imagery of the burning bush. A fire... And a thorn bush, it's not beamer. By the way, it's a thorn bush. Not beautiful. Thorn bushes are, you know, I mean, dare I say, ugly. It's not always going to be pretty. But it's, it's going to be, there's going to be consistency in, uh, in, in our reality. Now, the next piece that I want to highlight is Moses saying, let me turn now and see this great spectacle. Why does the thorn bush not burn up? He almost says to himself, like, Wow, what's going on? Let me check this out. And then look at verse 4. The Lord saw that he had turned to see, So God calls out to Moses. The implication here is that if Moses would have walked by and not looked and not turned off the side of the road to take a better look, maybe none of this ever happens. Maybe. It's when the Lord sees that he had turned to see that God calls from to him from the bush. God could have said, Hey, Moses, come check this out. He didn't. And this highlights something powerful in life, and that is, in life, there are things, anomalies. We would call them maybe glitches in the matrix, weird things, strange occurrences, whether good, bad, or ugly. And it behooves us, like Moses, to stop and pay heed and pay attention, take heed and pay attention, and stop and be in that space to learn the lesson of what happened, to connect with what actually happens. Because so often, stuff happens around us, but we're so convinced that we know exactly where we need to be, that we keep on moving, because, oh, no, I got to be there. Reminds me of the story of the Berdychever. Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Berdichev. He once saw a man running in the street. He says, where are you running? He says, I'm running to make a living. Berdichever smiles and he says, how do you know your living is that way and not the other way? Right, how do you know? The guy says, I'm running to work. I need to make some money. Who says it's that way? It it, it just reminds us that that we want to feel like we're in control. And we often believe that we're in control. And in reality, there's another reality. So we're very busy. We're very busy. But if we don't stop and smell the roses slash behold the sight of the burning bush, we might miss something very important. It's good to take note of what's going on. It's when God sees that Moses stops and turns and pays attention that God communicates to him. It's not like God was going to communicate to him anyway. I mean, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But it says specifically that God saw that he had turned to see, and that's when God launches into his call, Moshe, Moshe, Hineni. That's when that happens. So again, the message in life is, there are messages everywhere. Divine messages everywhere. But are we stopping to pay attention? Or are we so busy that we're just ignoring all the signs around us? Whatever those signs may be. Let's continue. Ooh, it's long. Okay. Let's do just a few more verses. So the Lord saw that he had turned to see, and God... Oh, we did that already. God said, Do not draw near here. Don't get too close. It's hot. But also... Take your shoes off your feet because the place upon which you stand is holy soil. Remember, this was the Temple Mount. This was Choreb. This is a burning bush with divine presence inside. Presence, not presents. Although, who wouldn't mind some uh, gift wrapped. Uh, this, Yeah. All right. These are presents under the tree, under the burning bush. No, it's the divine presence inside the burning bush. And so God says to him, don't get too close. Take off your shoes. Because the place upon which you stand is holy soil. Admas Kodesh. It's a holy ground. Take off your shoes. To this day, by the way, we have a custom when we go into. Oh, when the Kohanim and the priests would serve in the temple, they did so without shoes on. They served in the temple. It was cold. Cold stone. Imagine that. Cold Jerusalem stone in the, in the temple. They would serve barefoot. And um, today, till till this very day, when we go to the gravesite of a tzaddik, if you go to the Ohel, for example, in Queens, where the Rebbe is laid to rest and his father-in-law right next to him, the custom is to go in without leather shoes, either barefoot or with non-leather shoes, but take off shoes meaning take off the leather because the place you stand is holy. And God essentially says, let's continue, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look toward God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their slave drivers, for I know their pains. I know their pains. I have descended to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flown with mug and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Prisites, Hevites, and Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. As we said before, they cried with the babies being murdered for the blood. And I've also seen the oppression that the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now come, he says to Moses, and I will send you to Pharaoh and take my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. This is God's call to Moses. I want you to be the one to take them out of Egypt. This is where we're going to end. We're going to go back and fill in some details tomorrow of the request. We're going to explore Moses' response. As you guys know, and the, the spoiler alert is, Moses refuses again and again and again until he no longer can refuse. But we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of exactly this dialogue, what it was about, and what they were actually speaking about. So all of that is coming up tomorrow, and we'll continue the next day as we go through the, the opening of the, of the book of Shmos known as shmos, exodus. All right, questions or comments thus far or for, uh, from today's uh, conversation? Questions, comments? Okay, I'll end with this. I'll end with this. A few lessons that, that, I, that I've taken from today's session. Number one, I may go in backwards order, a different order. Number one, it's good to stop and smell the roses and pay attention. Life moves by so fast, but oftentimes in the little interactions, the little messages, or the little little things, the little blips on the side could hold the key to our destiny. Let's not pass that by and not pay attention. That's one thing. Next is in the origin story of Moses. Again, going backwards, we have three stories. Story number one, the Egyptian man beating up the Jew. Story number two, a Jew raising his hand against another Jew. And story number three, Midianite. Shepherds harassing Midianite shepherdesses. Three stories. In all three stories, Moses responds the same way with bravery, with confidence, and with speed. He sees the Egyptian man beating up the Jew, he steps in. The Jew about to strike the Jew, he steps in. The Midianites harassing the, the, the girl shepherds, the shepherdesses, he steps in. When he sees injustice, when he sees the wrong, He steps in to write it. He doesn't turn his head and say, it's not for me, it's not my business. When he sees a burning bush, he doesn't turn his head and say, wow, that's weird, but I'm very busy. Moses is a guy who gets involved. Yeah. If you see something, say something, or even better, do something. If you see something, do something about it. That's the legacy of Moses. Moses didn't just get plucked for this job You know, hey, Moses, be the redeemer because you're such a righteous dude. Moses becomes Moses, or Moses is Moses, the Torah tells us, for these stories. There's a reason why the Torah, out of the first, he's 80 years old at the time of the burning bush, 80. There's a reason why the Torah only feels feels fit to mention three stories of his becoming a man. And all three stories speak to the same theme, writing, injustice. In a space of of the wrong, doing the right. Whether it's Egyptian on Jew, what we would call anti-Semitism, whether it's Jew on Jew, inside the tent fighting, or whether it's non-Jew on non-Jew, Gentile on Gentile, Midianite on Midianite, he steps in. He's not only defending his own. He's a man who stands up for what's right and a man who protects, who wishes to protect the victim, the underdog. These are, these are core values and values that we see in the Moses story, which justifies the Hebrew term by Moshe, Moses grew up. Not just, in, not just in size, not even just in stature, as Rashi said, that he became the head of the household. He grew up and became a mature, active member of the community in the sense of the world community in the sense of taking responsibility for what's going on around him. He doesn't say, well, let's someone else. Okay, sounds like someone needs to get involved. I hope someone's going to do it. He's the one that does it. How often do we say, you know, somebody should really fix that. How often are we the ones to actually fix it? That's the legacy of Moses. And to pay attention to the details. All right, thank you for joining me today. Tonight, don't miss this. Tonight's class, in person and online Torah studies, is all about, it's all about, the Moses being put into the Nile River and the lessons that we learn from that experience. You definitely want to catch this either on Zoom or in person. In person, we have the return of the great babka. So you may want to consider that when, when planning your evening. Um, 7.30 to 8.30 tonight. InTown Jewish Academy. Can't wait to see y'all. All right. I think that's it. Great to see you guys. All right. Take care. Have a wonderful day. Bye Sarah, bye Donna. Thank you. Take care.